0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, you are back in the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren in the middle of the bushfires, and I'm still here. See, I, I, I care about my listeners and about getting paid. And uh, and of course David he's he's over there you know enjoying the the sun and you know ninety degree heat yeah doing his nails and <laughs> he's in his little summer dress and he's just having a good old time you know I am you know, that, that is true that is true and uh, <laughs> yeah, purple it's your color and yeah. and today we've got a returning guest who's uh, really it's it's the morning and uh, he's in. Australia. So, Mr. Garrick Jones, thank you for coming on.
1: Good day. Good morning. Yeah. Here I am. <laughs>
0: well, that's it. Well, thank you for being here. No, it's, um, uh, this is wonderful. So, you've got another book coming out. You're, you're really getting into this uh, writing uh. thing.
1: Yeah, this book was written, I think uh, this is the 11th version, the final published version. It was written in uh, 2014, so I spent a lot of time amongst those books that I wrote before I even thought I was good enough to get anything published. So I've been sitting there for ages, and then when the first book in the series was taken up by a publisher, um, uh, that's when it all sort of kicked off. So I've been working on that, on that, and that's coming out now uh, mm-hmm. next next. 3rd of September, whenever that is, next Thursday in the U.S.? I don't know, It's all the I yep. don't know. I know. Over, I never get but, to...
0: um, but it's all the same. So this is the book, too, right? Uh, now, the, yep. now, the first book is the, um, this, what is that? S- 7th S- of S- December. S- December sir, That's sorry.
1: right, yeah. This is the World War Two spy adventure thriller. It's written in a sort of a boy's own adventure style with lots of action and... Uh, you know, spies, thrilling, Nazis, bullets, bombs, all that exciting stuff. It's done very, very well, this book. I reissued it in a new edition um, in December last year because the original publisher folded and the reverts were, rights were reverted to me. So I rehashed it together to the original version before they'd done their edit on it, Reinstated a big prologue and a couple of characters that they cut. So then that allowed me to move forward and rewrite the second book. Um, which has been edited by the same editor in the UK. Um, And, yeah, it sort of takes on immediately after the end of the first book. And in April in 1941, and continues through to the 7th of December 1941, and we all know what happened then, on that day. (laughs) Well, we don't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you you know, education level in America is not as what it used to be. Well, certainly people remember that.
1: Pearl Harbor, yeah. bombing of Pearl Harbor. Surely.
0: No, that's a new type of headwear or neck. Really, the oh, live in infamy. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Well. Mm-hmm. So now this book is called X for, for extortion. extortion. Yep. Ooh. I mean, spot of X.
1: I I can't really <laughs> explain why without giving the plot away. Oh. But. Yeah, because the title, and funnily enough, even the colour of the print of the title on the cover is all linked into the larger story. So that's why it's a part of a big mystery. We don't find out what the ex-extortion actually means until probably about a third of the way through the book when um, the main focus, the main plot mystery unfolds. But again, it's um, another book about, you know, Nazi infiltration of Great Britain uh, during the war and blackmail and assassination attempts. Got all that good, you know, jungle gym stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what got you into doing this kind of writing? It's different. Uh,
1: this book, I, I don't know if I explained when I did the first interview about the 7th of December for you, but my godfather, who was a gay man, he, he met his uh, American boyfriend of 62 years in London in 1942 at a nightclub and uh, he was working for one of the intelligence agencies uh, during the Second World War and he left a diary. So I have this diary of everything that happened to him from 1940, 1938 when he first arrived to Britain right through to the end of the war and uh, how he met his lovely man Charlie. Um, they both died within six weeks of each other. It was very you know, amazing relationship. But um, there was a nightclub in um, in London called the Rainbow Corner, which was set up by Americans during the war for their servicemen to have as a social club. And quite often, um, because, you know, there were dances and there were stuff that women would come in and they would get pick- pickpocket crowds and prostitutes and stuff. So every so often the MPs would clear the place out of the women and all the men would dance but what they do is get a, an armband so if you got got a band of blue that meant you were the male dance partner and the next <laughs> dance you gave it to the other guy and he was the, the male partner so there was, it was quite accepted if there weren't any women around that they were just all these all male dancers that gave the guys a chance to um, dance and my godfather Doug found himself in the arms of this 6 foot 2 blue eyed crew cuttered American pilot and that was history as I could say <laughs> and they were together for 62 years so a lot of the, the, the stories are based around what happened to him, not actual stories but the atmosphere of what went on during London during the Blitz and during the war and he was sent over to be part of the Nuremberg Trials at the end of the war too, um, which is when the whole series will eventually end up when I finish writing the last book.
0: Uh, you you know, and I and I'm kind of joking earlier, but not really. You know, when you say everybody should remember Pearl Harbor and the date, I I, I get a lot of people that we do shows um, more on the serious side. You know, talking about the admiral and some of his relatives were on the one that got demoted and during Pearl Harbor, and we we've covered a lot of topics in the World War One and Two. I'm 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 constantly surprised at how many people really don't know that history
1: oh it's extraordinary i mean i think we have a greater um, because we have a national day of remembrance we call it anzac day um which is the day that celebrates Um, our first major battle in the First World War at Gallipoli, and that's celebrated nationwide. The whole country closes down, and there are dawn services that pretty well most people go to. There's still a big national connection to to our servicemen. Um, It's not treated as a holiday where there are barbecues. I think Memorial Day is a bit different in the U.S., isn't it? There's a bit more yeah. sort of family yeah. gathering stuff. And, but no, here it's really totally focused. So there's a lot more awareness. We're also ta- taught um, our history at, at school, both in primary school and high school. So a lot more awareness. I, there wouldn't be anybody in this country who didn't, was not aware of um, both Gallipoli and Pearl Harbor.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I, I Sadly, I, I have the feeling that it's not the same. Uh, it's not quite the same in the U.S. It, I can just tell by the um, you know, the people that write in and what they say about it and the questions they ask, you start to realize that they really had no – very little information on it, which surprises me because I would think they'd learn a lot more of in school. It would still be there, but maybe a lot of it's gone. I don't but, know.
1: See, the other thing is, too, that um, I – I don't know if you—I told you—but I went to school in both Seattle and Vancouver in high school, and I was just astounded by the parochial nature of history teaching, for example, and geography, where everything was North America um, concentrated. So there was no real discussion of what happened in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, or in East Asia, whereas our schooling is far more. Uh, Catholic, it was so, far more universal. So we didn't not only study our own history, but we studied the history of other countries. So I think we're a little, we, I don't know what it's like now, but certainly people of my age are much more aware of history worldwide.
0: Mm, yeah. Did you guys, did you wear a little dress too, like the Catholic school girls?
1: No. No. Oh. We, wore a, <laughs> a, we wore a proper uniform with a boater and a bow tie and a blazer. And all of that polished shoes and brilliantied hair. I actually got sent over in school because I didn't have brilliant hair brilliant in my hair one day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking.
0: <laughs> no, I just but it's pretty funny. Eh? Boy times have changed. Yeah. You know, they show up with a you know, Metallica T shirt on and <laughs> <laughs> That was the eighties. <laughs> that was the eighties. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I've been back, but you know. It's, yeah. but like the, they
1: still do in this country. A lot of the private schools still have uniforms like that, like you imagine old British schools with all of the kids in a proper dress uniform.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's some private schools like that too. I, I I don't know how far it's gone. I guess I'm kind of talking out of turn in that way. But um, So when you're telling these stories, what, do you, what is it you kind of – are you just trying to get your stories across from –
1: Look, I was asked this very same thing very recently because this will be my eighth book out and the interviewer said they're all about gay people, they're all gay stories. I said, well, no, they're not actually gay stories, they're just stories in which the protagonists just happen to be gay people and they don't define themselves by their sexuality, it's just who they are. and the interviewer was said, can you please explain more? And I said, well, you're probably not aware, but out there around you, there are probably hundreds of bricklayers and judges and policemen and whatever who go home to a partner of the same sex and they don't make a big thing about it. That's just, you know, part of who they are. It doesn't define who they are. That's not what they're all about. They're not all about being a gay person. They just happen to be a person who has a preference um sexually for people of the same sex. So I suppose that's what the aim of my books are about. And also to sort of educate that um, when I wrote the Clyde Smith books, the one set in the 1950s, that it wasn't all doom and gloom and hiding in the cupboard. That McCarthyism wasn't rampant worldwide. That people did get on with their lives and they lived more or less like you and I do today, except much more privately. That's, I suppose, the, the feature behind my writing, what I feel anyway.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's important. It's an important aspect because a lot of people think that um, it's just all about, you know, dresses and drag queens, but there, there's a lot of people that just live their life that happen to be gay, right? They they do what they want to do. And, well, yeah. you're only
1: going to look at people like J. Edgar Hoover, you know, like really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there he was living with, uh, I've of those guys now, I can't remember, I've forgotten um, what he's well his name yeah. was all those yeah. years living together, and um, the general public in the u s didn't know then why should they? What did it have to do with anything
0: yeah well you, yeah, because you're there to do a job and and you have to have an image, especially back then um, but it's it's kind of a, a funny situation in in a case like that. Um, um, I think it surprises people, and then they try to not believe it, almost deny it
1: yeah. Yeah, we I, I, we need a whole lot more courageous people to just acknowledge that they have a male partner. Um, I'm sure that the football leagues in America full of gay men. I mean, when I say full, but there's probably more than one. That recent guy that just came out recently, yeah. more than one. I mean, there must be you know dozens all over the country, and there must be professional tennis players and all sorts of other athletes. Um, So what's the big deal? I mean, honestly, a lot of straight guys need to have a really good look in the mirror and and own up that they are not an object of desire for every gay man in the world.
0: Yeah. Well, the football players are. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know. But you know that thing
1: about, you know, the the homophobia, about I don't want a gay guy touching me. Yeah, yeah. Sister, go look at yourself, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> get a yeah. grip. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the idea, you know. It's like, oh, well, just don't do anything gay around me, okay? Yeah, well, um, so um, you converse, go
1: into- Just going on from that subject, conversely, the, the mirror side of this is featured in this book. There's a character in it who pretends to be a sissy gay man um, to get girls comfortable in his company. And then when they're really company, the guards down, and they've had a few drinks. That's when he seduces them. So you know,
0: yeah. He guess the old. I've never done this before. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, so, but you you focus your books a lot of a lot of your books. You're focused all on the past quite a bit. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it, is it is it that you like the times better back in the in the thirties, forties, fifties, and all that? Well,
1: I think that there are, for every person who writes a contemporary novel, uh, every person who writes an historical novel, there are about five thousand who write a contemporary novel. So you're fighting against a bigger market. I don't know that I have a voice to reflect about what's going on now because I'm a 73-year-old man who lives by himself in a regional town in, you know, in Queensland, in Australia, and I don't really know a lot about what's going on in contemporary culture. Um, Yet I do know a lot about what happened in the 1950s, 60s and 70s because that's when I grew up. I also wanted very much to explore that whole legacy of broken men from the Second World War that I grew up with, that guys who came back from the Second World War who were told to man up and shut up and just get on with lives and forget what had happened to them. So we we have this thing called PTSD now which has always existed but never was focused upon in the past. So when I grew up, every, every one of my uncles, my father, my grandfather, the neighbors, all of those men that I grew up with were all guys who'd been through terrible traumatic experiences and spend most of their their lives like as coiled up as a spring trying to not let, it, let it out. And I wanted to explore in my books that, um, that mentality of trying to be a man and also being a gay man and yet just getting on with life with all of this Past history behind you. It's a very fascinating period. That nineteen fifties, you know, yeah. the in the nineteen sixties and after, after the Vietnam War, men were allowed to be disturbed mentally, but you weren't allowed to be like that in the fifties. Yeah. You know, you you would be sort of luck, locked away or, or lobotomized or something.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's amazing how it's changed. Um, it, it's it's really interesting. So when you go through each story, like when you finish this X for extortion, like this is another book that you had previously written that you've kind of redone. How does, how does doing each book change you? Um,
1: what it does, I when, when you read a series, this is my own personal philosophy, when I read a series, I want to discover more about the people, what makes them tick. I, I don't want to read... Um, books that are not about the personalities and, um, and what drives them to do what they do and who they are. So I expect in every book in a series for you to discover more about that person, more of their backstory, more of what makes them who they are, which then I think allows the reader to engage more with the main characters.
0: Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. There's, there's so many that, that don't give you enough, you know, so that's good. Um and well, inter- I think that
1: those books serve a particular purpose. If you were at an airport and you just wanted a quick read on a plane and there's no character development, it's just story, 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 that's fine. But I think if you write a book that deserves to be read, or then you you need that sort of uh, development within it.
0: Well, I think they call those romance books, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Remember, I said that. No, David said that. So. <laughs> Me? Yeah, send him to, yeah. Send him the email. He reads all. That's right.
1: <laughs> that's right. I, I tell you why, though. There, there is a group on Facebook called uh, Quiltbag Historials Historics, which is a group of the Q U I L T B A G stands for various parts of queer, lesbian, asexual, bi, whatever. Um, and they're about they're a group of writers who write historical novels. And a lot of those writers write um, what I call semi romances historical, but uh, Pretty well, most of them have a lot of strong character development in them. So there, there's room for both.
0: Yeah, there is. I, I think uh, typically you don't get that more so much in some of those books. But.
1: No, you don't get them in the what do you call the corset rippers or bosset, bodice rippers. I'm not yeah. sure what you call them in <laughs> the U.S. they all different names everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Barbara Cartland type books. I think that's what we believe, don't we? Yeah,
0: yeah. So I just wondered, but the. So you go quite into the character development. You go quite into the, uh, especially like you were saying, how the, that time period, um, it wasn't very, um, let's say, popular um, for men to show their feelings.
1: Well, it wasn't accepted socially. I mean, it was really frowned upon. And in fact, um, what people forget is that the, all of the... Um, societal anti-gay stuff that sort of went on in the 1950s happened in whispers between, between closed doors because it was considered really impolite and rude to talk about people in public um, in social gatherings. So if, if a woman got an, a reputation as a gossip or as a man as spreading lies, you know, they'd be really, they wouldn't be invited anywhere anymore. So all of that stuff happened beh- behind closed doors um, in, you know, Husbands and wives nattering well, women having afternoon tea together. But even then, women uh, ran the risk of being ostracized if they were considered to be telling stories. It wasn't polite. It wasn't part of who you were supposed to be.
0: But I guess that would put a... The times also put a lot of pressure on people, because, you you know, especially in this, you've got the Nazis, you you know, the the war, you've got spies, you've got all these things going on, assassination. Those times... um, uh, b- because a gay man was looked as just feminine, right? Uh, or there's something wrong with them.
1: Well, that's what society saw them as, but, you know, we all know that that's not the case.
0: No, but it, it, in the in the picture, like if you took someone in the 50s or even the 60s and you said, oh, that's James Bond, and yeah, he's, he's gay, uh, it wouldn't work.
1: It wouldn't work for the public, but it would work with aware people because they'd realize that, you know, that gay people are everywhere. They do everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, people in the inn, but in the general uh, public, they would be kind of you know, he's light in the loafers, or whatever yeah. saying that they had. <laughs> that would be kind of.
1: Well, look, I think that's a problem with all heterosexual movie producers. They really want to. They really get. I, I, I recently watched, uh, rewatched a movie called Hamam. I don't know if you've seen it. The Turkish bath. It's a, it's a Turkish Italian collaboration set in Istanbul in the, in the 80s and 90s about an Italian married man who goes um, to Istanbul to see about the house he's inherited from his aunt and it turns out to be a steam bath.
0: Oh.
1: And, he, and he falls in love with um, the son of the family who are running it. And it's a really you know terrific story. It's really beautifully, beautifully filmed. But then at the end of the movie, this guy gets killed. And I thought to myself, that's so indicative of straight movie-making thinking that gay people always have to end up badly, either with bad relationships they end up dying of AIDS or they end up getting stabbed or you know, wrecked us by the police and hung. But, so straight men reinforce their own sexuality by putting gay men down and I think that needs to change a lot. We need much more positive gay messages in movies and television. So we don't have this sort of subtle homophobia running underneath, or we're given lip service for being gay—you know, a little wink and a nod. Like the third character in the cast just happens to be this sissy queen, rather than you know the the bodybuilder who bashes down walls with his fist. Uh, do, do you follow my drift?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, of course. Well, you got to keep making some movies. What are you doing, writing books? Yeah, but think of all of
1: the <laughs> think of all of the big. Um, movies lately, like Brokeback Mountain. I mean, that's a yeah. wonderful... The book is amazing. If you haven't read the book, read Annie Peru's short story. It's only really, really short, but it's so gritty. I, I didn't find the movie gritty at all. I found the movie a little romantic and sad at the yeah. end. But, you know, there, there was another movie about gay men which was sad. Philadelphia, another gay movie that was sad. You know, where are the, where are the big movies that celebrate gay men being happy?
0: Well, because it's not a good life to choose. No matter what, you're going to end up in a bad situation. <laughs> <Isn't> yeah. <it?
1: laughs> and as long as we keep telling those stories, people will believe it. The main, mainstream people will believe it. We need, we need serious positive role, role models in politics, in sports, in the arts, and we need it in our literature and in our films. That's my platform. I'm running you, for president.
0: You run. <laughs> you go. You go. Uh, you know, but but do you think it's? I don't know. Do you think that's going to be? I think it's easier said than done. Um,
1: oh, look, I think it, it'll take a long, long time. And you think how far we've come. I mean, when I was growing up in the nineteen fifties, the idea of the men getting married was just like what.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, and that's fifty years later on, sixty years later on. Who knows what's going to happen? We might go through another one of those revolutionary social changes where all of a sudden, you know, we're all witch-burning witches and. You know, and and decapitating gay people. Who knows? You know, history has a way of rolling around in circles. The wheel turns, and maybe we'll revisit that, or maybe we'll return to an age like the Romans and Greeks, where being gay is just a normal, accepted part of homosexuality, sexuality. Yeah. and there isn't such a phobia. I mean, what are straight people afraid of, for God's sake? I have no idea. I have no idea what gay straight men are afraid of from gay men. I, what? what yeah, well, it I think me.
0: it's no, but I, you know, t- t- I think it's got. Um, I don't know, it's got a label, it's got an idea that if someone is gay, they're all of a sudden feminine,
1: or they're all, or they're interested in you, and they want to, you know, ravage your children or something. That's the other. Ridiculous well, yeah, notion. that's
0: the, you know, that's kind of the more of a <laughs> evangelical point of view, right? They, you know, our agenda is to steal their children, but if so, they only knew, yeah. You know, it's the dad. Um, but, but if if, but to be honest, like why can't? Well, I don't know. I don't think that'll ever change. But I think that um, the image of being gay, of being feminine, by by letting a man have sex with you, I guess that, I don't know. It's it's still got a, a negative. I don't know. thought it, yeah. on. One
1: one of the biggest drag queens, most famous drag queens in Australia. is a, 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 woman called Carlotta. and Back in the, um, back in the 1960s, they're, they're one of the big drag shows in Sydney they used to tour all of the, the veterans clubs in Australia putting on drag shows. So do you, uh, the veteran clubs, we call them the RSL, the Returned so- Soldiers League Clubs. And Carlotta said the number of times she was hit on by straight men in these places, she'd taken the home um, hundred hotel, and the first thing they do is take their pants on and lay on their backs. I mean, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have a story involved, and um, are you choosing all your stories from your uncle?
1: Uh, no, not all. It's sometimes, when I'm doing the research for um, for the books, each of the individual books, I I discover something that um, that leads me onto an idea of thinking, well. You know, this would this, be very easy for this character to end up involved in this particular type of situation. And how would that advance our understanding of him and also drive the story?
0: Wow. So you really think this out. Um, oh,
1: look, I do think I've got the, the seven books uh, of the, this particular series, the war series, already um, fleshed out. I've written the first four. First two have been published. Um, the next two need revisiting, and the next three are all uh, have the the lines drawn out, the, um, the storylines drawn out, and notes made for them. And the, I intend the steer- series to finish at the Nuremberg Trials in 1946. So it'll encompass encompass the entire period of the war and this relationship of these two men throughout that period.
0: I'm wondering too, uh, when you're writing your characters, has have you ever had a character uh, do anything that uh, surprised you?
1: Oh, all the time. I, I, this morning, um, when I got out of bed, I just went through um, a couple of thousand pages, uh, pages, a couple of thousand words I'd written yesterday, <laughs> and I go, where the, where the bloody hell did that come from? Wow. <laughs> yeah, great, that's a great idea. Now, I, sometimes I don't plan these things to happen, but the characters speak in your mind so much, all of a sudden they, have, they mm-hmm. take over and you find yourself writing stuff and you're going, why did I put him in that situation? And then all of a sudden, you know, the next day while you're having a shower or you're doing gardening or something like that, you go, ah, now that's why I, I have been doing this. And you, you mm-hmm. find out you've de- developed a whole you know, parallel universe in your mind, in your unconscious that's been hammering away inside to get out.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, mm. So, <laughs> you hear your 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 um, characters. How? What do you? What's your relationship with your characters?
1: Um, I base them on particular people in my life, or people that I know, that in my family, or people that I know very very well. There, there. For example, Clive. In the Clyde, in the Clyde Smith series, the detective um, has aspects of my uncle, uh, of my godfather, who was in World War person, of course, but uh, who was um, had he had a, a whole circle of pals um, in the nineteen fifties. A whole lot of that, that's how people got together, private gatherings at homes, and often as a kid, I'd be invited along to go and see. And there was a particular famous tennis player who played. Um, Um, internationally, uh, who was a gay man and nobody ever knew. And he was, the, I suppose, the heartthrob of my early teen years before I realised why he was a heartthrob. But he was just like this really sort of blokey bloke. And and when I heard about what he'd done during the war and um, what he did um, to supplement, because tennis was then amateur sport, he worked for um, a, a small investigations bureau. Um, mainly on divorces, trying to take pictures of people in bed together and stuff. But, you know, that's where I base the Clyde Smith character. Um, and then, of course, my, the um, Tommy, who's the main character in the X for Extortion uh, series, is a violinist, and he's based on a wonderful, wonderful Russian violinist called uh, Kirill Trusov. And then he's a mix between Kirill and my godfather,
0: why did you pick that character like the violinist?
1: Well, when you, um, if you have a look out ever look him up and have a look at him, he's got the look the way I describe Tommy in the book. He looks exactly like him, and the way he plays the violin speaks to me in the same way that I can write about it when Tommy's playing the violin. The, mu- the series is very music-oriented. Um, um, there's a little bit more in this book because Tommy's cover becomes more and more as a concert violinist rather than as a, uh, uh, you know, an out-and-out out wrestle with Nazi's fi. That happens as the, in the life, but his cover is a concert violinist, which allows him to travel everywhere. There's a, quite a big section where he goes to Boston, where I lived for a number of years, so I was able to write about that with a bit of verisimilitude. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's also based a little bit on Noel Coward, who worked for the OSS, the American Secret Service, during the Second World War. Noel Coward um, worked um, trying to raise morale. He played at concerts. He also spied all over Europe while he was entertaining troops and while he was playing in, uh, and singing in America. Yeah, so there's a whole combination of things that draw them together, and then when you formulate the character in your mind, to me that person becomes live, and their voice is completely different than anybody else's in the story. Mm. I think having been a performer on the stage for 30 years, that one it's very easy to learn t- to immerse yourself into another personage, and that's what I think has helped me write such different voices for each of my main characters.
0: Where do you draw from for the Nazis or for the for the for the bad people in the story then?
1: Oh, well, I lived in Germany off and on for 30 <laughs> years, so um, no, the people were, you know, absolutely wonderful. And but I arrived there in 1972, where there were still bomb sites everywhere, and mm-hmm. um, people were still. Young people were still bearing the scars of what they lived through. There was evidence of the war everywhere, and there's this incredible feeling of shame and guilt, um, and also um, a lot of reading, a lot of um, history reading and research into the period.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, how Germany has actually dealt with uh, um, the whole Nazi thing and, and the war. You know.
1: Yeah. Well none of us have our brother's keepers, none of us are responsible for what our parents did. Um, you know, that the whole thing of, you know, if a father commits a murder then the son's guilty, that doesn't really work morally. Um, and so these people who were born after the war or, or weren't participants doing it, they shouldn't carry the guilt of what another complete generation did. They could be shameful for what happened, but The fact that they had no participation in it shouldn't make them accept responsibility for what other people did. I mean, do you take responsibility for the the lynchings of black people in the U.S.?
0: No, but I'm I'm an idiot. Yeah, but I was was (laughs) going. You cut
1: cut me off before I could finish. Or or the the massacres of 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 the native tribes in Canada, you know. Right. You can't you can't take (laughs) personal responsibility for Mm. that.
0: No, but I, I was watching a documentary yesterday, and uh, it was quite well. They had uh, Germans and Jews put together now, and it's interesting how they have a lot of um, memorials set up throughout so many places in Germany. Oh, for that, sure. And it's not—it's not a memorial to um, go and worship or take a picture. It's just some—it's a reminder. Like they put street signs where like jews weren 't allowed to do this, or a female jew couldn 't come to this store. they just put signs throughout, and for them, it seemed like the primary thing was not so much to look back and go you know and feel guilty, but it 's to remind them not to to, to have that happen again.
1: Yeah, I, I, look, I think that's amazing and I think that we need that in more Western countries because what's happened in your country and in uh, the USA and in Australia and in UK a lot is this like not learning the lessons of history, of going down this pl- path of plutocracy where money is everything and ruling by ruthlessness rather than, a, than reading back into history and seeing what the results of that ruthlessness can bring.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's sort of what I mean. I mean, they have the memorials set up everywhere, and they're not like a big, huge statue, 9-11 sort of thing. It's just there's little, they put little reminders throughout everywhere and little common places and streets and areas so that you, it's just there. So you, you, you're, you're always aware of something like that, where it's like, you know, when we talked about history at the beginning and laughing about the world war and not, people not remembering it. It's not that far off. There's so many people that don't really... No, it's not not that
1: long ago, really. Um, I was reading yesterday that the year 1980 was as far from 1939 as it is from Mm. 2021. You know, same number of years. I remember distinctly 1980. I mean, for heaven's sake, I was nearly 30. So uh, people who were 30 in 1980... Uh, you know, will remember the war period, the, the grown-up as children during the war. So it mm. puts things into perspective, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, totally. absolutely.
1: And, of course, we forget now we haven't had a global conflict as such, apart from the war on terror, for 80 mm. years. I mean, something that's taken over every waking moment of everybody's day life with rationing for everybody and all sorts of... We haven't had that. So people have forgotten and that they tend to see in their minds things like the second wall in, in black and white as if they're watching a movie that mm. are at one remove rather than people like me who grew up at the end of it who were brought up in the, in the aftermath. I mean, we still had rationing when I was a tiny kid and we had blackout paper on the, on the windows mm. that didn't come down for years and used to, because people didn't get round to it. and you know, So there was a constant reminder of something that had just happened. But um, I still do. Do you? <laughs> well, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I still got my grandmother's wartime cookbook on my shelf in the kitchen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, speaking of these, these darker aspects and stuff, yep. um, after writing fiction, especially dark scenes, um, do you have a way to decompress, or you know, do you even need to decompress Can you just move on to the next? I can um, story? I
1: can pretty well move on. I've had a couple when it was writing um, uh, the last Clive Smith book, which was all about childhood abuse. Um, in the 1950s in institutions, so I do, and I was interviewing these guys who'd been through there. I just, like, I had to take days off. I was just so, it was such a cathartic experience hearing these men's stories. Because I couldn't put, actually, in the book, what happened to these guys. It was just, like, too horrific. And you wonder, wow. you wonder in your mind why somebody who's supposed to be a, a religious person, a priest or a, a minister, can actually do to a young, vulnerable child and yet think that's all right. And these guys, that, that that made them into who they are. It's so a wonder the four guys I interviewed didn't turn out to be axe murderers, you know, what they went through. Yeah. At least if you're an adult, you can resist. But if you're a seven or eight-year-old boy and you've got some, you know, 50-year-old priest jumping on you, there's very little you can do. Yeah. So, yeah. so yes, there are parts where I have to decompress. The, um, the Clyde Smith book, And when I was writing Wheelchair, the contemporary one about the guy with OCD and PTSD, there were a couple of times in that where I really had to take a few days and pull myself together. Mm. I don't think that's a bad thing, because if you're writing about emotions, then you need to actually feel them to be able to put them on the page.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's got to be real, so it's got to come from somewhere real, and so it will affect you.
1: Yeah, Yeah, a lot of people don't like that writing, of course. No. Um, I just had a review very recently that I, I'm still laughing about. It. It says, "I really like your books, but you have to read them." <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a tough thing to do. It yeah, really you know, I,
1: obviously it's a skim reader who yeah. doesn't, you know, <laughs> if they're glancing down the page trying to follow a story. They're, they're going to miss an awful lot.
0: <laughs> I only buy books for the pictures. Do <laughs> <Right.
1: laughs> so they still publish those sorts of books? Do they?
0: They are. They are. You know, they're usually in the Walmart. Bargain bin, but <laughs> uh, I thought they were in the, your local adult store. I thought you well, those two, sort of <laughs> mm. those two, but you know, um, you know, Dave buys them all up. Yes.
1: Can I ask you a guy thing? Uh, you think about um, eroticism in books? You know how you two feel about that? Here's a question coming from the interviewee mm. to the interviewers. What, what do you feel about that in, in sort of mainstream or even mystery? What's your take on eroticism in books? Well,
0: for me personally, I could take or leave it. I'm not interested in it. Um, it depends. Like if it's uh, if it's based on if it's just about sex and the erotic, then I'm not really interested. I lose I lose interest real fast. So um, it's not going to catch me. I mean, if you have um, if you have a good story and there's some erotic parts to it. And they belong there, like they're there for a reason. Then it works. Um, but I'm not discounting the people that do that work, because what they do mm-hmm. is they they have an audience that likes that, and so so be it. But yeah. it's not it's not my taste.
1: I I only ask this because in an inter- interview I did really recently, the. In- interviewer said to me, um, what would you say to people who would criticise Clyde, that's the Clyde Smith detective, as being promiscuous? And I said, hang on a second, this guy's uh, 37, he started having sex when he was 16 and he slept with four men in 20 years, why why would you call that promiscuous? Yeah. It sort of left me nonplussed. I said, Um, I, I said, I hate to say this, and it might sound misogynistic, but you're looking this, at this from a woman's point of view, aren't you? I said, um, most men, even straight men, will probably sleep with more, full, more than four partners in their life before they settle down. Yeah. yeah especially the these days. Yeah. So I, I just really wondering about it because it really threw me for six. I never thought about it. I thought, well, people would just expect that if you have, don't have the consequences of getting pregnant, and you're gay men, and, you, and sex is available pretty well. Whenever, then it's just you know yeah. you take you take your choices. Yeah. You either go, well, I only sleep with people I'm really really attracted to, or I just need to do it, and find <laughs> someone, release, yeah.
0: Release. <laughs> wow, you know, you know, and then Dave, Dave, what do you you like all that all that smut stuff, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think I think it needs to,
0: you know it needs to support the story of the stories needs to support I, it.
1: I think you're right, I think it needs to advance the plot you know, Mm -hmm. if you're reading an interesting book and you just come across a whole dump of sexual scenes that have got nothing to do with anything, they don't tell you about the characters that are doing it doesn't lead to anything, then why is it there you know
0: know, and I think it should be, it's fine in its own particular function, like so people that want to buy that and read that, that's there but it's certainly not It can't be a major part of the story unless there has some real meaning to it. If there's a reason that...
1: Oh, well, somebody gets stabbed mid-coitus or something, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then there's there's a point to it, you know, like if a a, a guy's sleeping with this woman, he's really, really into her, and they seem to be having a terrific time, and then all of a sudden she bites his tongue off and then somehow shoots him. I say, I don't know, that would, (laughs) would make sense.
0: Yeah, right. so yeah, it would
1: be describing a lead up that you think is going to be really passionate, and it ends with some storyline coming
0: yeah. out of it. Yeah, or if he's, or if he's got some weird fetish or something that uh, is causing mm. him to do things. Yeah, he, well, I'm,
1: I'm struggling yeah. to find weird fetishes these days. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, see, you see stuff and you go, "Well, really? That yeah. again?"
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they haven't been in my mind, but <laughs> 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 much. <laughs> Ma. <laughs> oh, that's me um, well that's, it's, it's pretty interesting What do you think your most important book is that you've written?
1: The one I think is the most important um, Is The House with the Thousand Stairs That's the story of a guy Who comes back um, in 1947 At the end of the First World War um, To find that his brother Has run down the family farm Has disappeared with all the money And he's left With this big sheep station That he has to try and revive and it's a story about him connecting through the la- to the land um, and to his home with the help of his neighbours and his childhood friend who's an Indigenous Australian policeman. And it delves into that looking through the Indigenous culture through a white man's eyes and trying to understand how the Australian Aboriginals treat the land as part of their being rather than something that they just use it as a resource. I think that was really, it's had a great, great deal of um, uh, very positive feedback. Um, and I, yeah, I felt very moved writing about it because there's this, when you write about the spirituality of any nation, that is a, not about vengeance, killing, all that sort of stuff as Christianity and Islam seems to be these current days. It's all about really love and peace and connection with nature, then it it really was very immersive and moving. And I also had to go through a big process with the local Indigenous councils to get approval to write about some of the stuff. Um, We we have very strict laws in Australia about what you're allowed to write and what you aren't if you're a non-Indigenous person. So, yeah, it was a great, and um, people really loved that book. There's been some wonderful feedback. It, it's a really good read. I, I highly recommend it if you want a, a feel-good movie because it's about rebuilding community by engaging with community. And I'm not saying it just because it's my book. Well, obviously I'm saying it just because it's my book, but, you know.
0: We can definitely all use uh, more positive things, definitely. Yeah. Do you, um, do you read anything or have any influences um, that might surprise your fans?
1: oh uh, yeah, I love sci-fi. I don't read, mm. write sci-fi. Um, I read a lot of sci-fi. I read a lot of. Uh, there's a, an American female crime writer called Tammy Hoag, who you may not have heard mm. of. Yeah, I, I love her books. I've read everything that she has. I just like. Her writing style. I like the fact that she writes about a very strong, capable woman trying to mm. succeed in a man's world. It gives you a sort of feeling of what it's like a bit to be a gay man trying to survive in a straight mm. man's world. Um, I also re- read a lot, a lot of history. You know, a lot of history books. Um, i I've just my next book out is. Uh, a spy thriller set in uh, 1955, 1855 in London, the end of the Crimean War and the amount of research I had to do on that and God, was it fascinating, big time. That whole mm. birth of hospitals, you know, the Florence Nightingale thing, the building of the first big sewerage system in London, the you know, underground transport starting to be built, connection of railways. Um, yeah, so I love history, I'll read anything about history. Um, and I also have a number of books written by uh, fellow authors who buy my books and I go out of my way to buy a copy of their books if they buy one of mine because if a friend of mine opened a coffee shop, I'd go and buy a coffee there to support them whether I like their coffee or not. Mm. And I feel it's a bit of a duty, you know, if you've got a pal who's a writer who write, write, reads read, read your books, um, I'll buy a book of theirs. Mm. Slowly I'm getting through those.
0: Yeah. I just put them in the bathroom. <laughs>
1: well, so when I, when I when I visit you'll see i stack of my books next to oh, the, t- yeah, the toilet
0: yeah, uh, yeah. they yeah, they're, they're in the basement toilet too. <laughs> oh Ron, nice oh that's the okay. good one uh, yeah, any, any, excuse,
1: any excuse to get me down to your basement I know that's, that's, <laughs>
0: yeah the hot tubs there I mean this is the, the real you know, royalty um, so how, so um Website. Let's give about your website. Where yep. where do they find you?
1: It's www all one word dot au.
0: Hmm. We'll have that linked up as well, so people can find you in one click. And yeah. Uh, what what's your grinder? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, funny enough, I don't have grinder. I don't. Um, I'm one of those old-fashioned people, you know that. Before the internet happened, <laughs> when we met people, it was really socially. We met them at some social venue. We didn't pick up the phone and go, Oh, yeah, that guy looks all right, looking at a photograph that was taken 20 years <laughs> ago, through a Vaseline-smeared lens in the dark.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, how I, I do g- all mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no,
1: I'm just not into... Uh, into internet hookups or anything like that. No, I know. To me, the attraction has always been, I call myself a sapiosexual. I've been always interested in um, very intelligent people who can hold conversation and and interest me intellectually. And then the physical thing seems to come after Mm -hmm.
0: that. Yeah, yeah, it's a better connection anyway, you know. You know, it's better. yeah, and and so I, I'll officially give you permission. You can use me as a character in one of your next books. Oh, okay, sure. it would be the stud, the the, you know, that that you know has to you know sleep with everyone because. Well, well d- I
1: have a little bit of advice to you, Alan. Uh, you just need to buy a bigger phone.
0: Yeah. Oh, I get that now. You do. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note we can walk away from this show because it's just, it's getting really, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> guys, another terrific interview. Thank you very much for putting me so much at ease. Um, yeah,
0: that's what we, we like talking to you. So uh, now the book is called X for Extortion, yep. and that's, that comes out on September 3rd. Yep. Um, now that will be in paper book, e-book, how yeah, does that come Yeah. Okay.
1: Paper book and e-book. You'll be able to get it from all my other books are in Target, which, rather surprises me. You know, (laughs) you go at at least sort of a gay presence in, I don't know if they're in, is it Walmart? Do you
0: have books in Walmart? Mm -hmm.
1: That would be really, really surprising. But, you know, any local bookstore, you just go in and you give them the title and my name and they can get it in with two or three days because everything's print-on-demand these days, but it'll be on Amazon, um, Kobo, Smashwords, all of those normal places. Barnes and Noble, they'll have it in stock.
0: Yeah, but you'd be surprised, Target. You know, the um, we had St. Suki de la Crayon, you know him? Yeah, yep. book. He found his books in Target. They actually are printing them and sending them in. Like They're ordering his books.
1: Yeah. I, so, I can tell you a very interesting story. I got a photograph from somebody. People write to me a lot on my website. I'm one of those authors who get lots and lots of emails, um, and I don't know why particularly. But a guy sent me a picture of the, the first Clyde Smith book, taken on a beach in Cannes, and he happened to be on holiday, and whoever was reading that book had just left it on their towel while they were in swimming. Um, and he recognised, he took a picture of it and sent it to me, and he said, you're famous in the French Riviera. Oh, there you
0: go.
1: <laughs> I said, I, I wanted to write back and say, did you wait for whoever it was to come out of the water? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I won't
0: say, I can yeah. imagine.
1: Yeah, no. Anyway, thank you very, very much. Well, thank much. you.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service?
0: Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. To
1: find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com
0: <laughs> has been completed. The end? By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something with
1: Media.